This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Amen. Amen. We've sung about the goodness. We've sung about the faithfulness of God. We've sung about His steadfast mercy. His love endures forever. And that is what I pray that if you are feeling new here or whether you've been here for over 30 years, I pray that you have just a renewed and refreshed experience of God today here in his house with his people looking at his word singing songs about him and loving and knowing Jesus he's why we're here today so it is so good to be with you this morning my name is Randy if you're here for the first time and wondering why I'm holding this celery stalk here I, I did this to get your attention and now I have it and um, but be that as it may, I'll be out in the fireside room, and I'd love to have a few moments of time with you after services, to just to pray with you, to meet with you, and to hear your encouragements, and to hear any requests that you might have. We want you to feel very much at home and welcome here in the house of the Lord today. Um, and I just hope that if you have any prayer requests you will put them down on the, either the index card or uh, if you'll put them on the app we pray over your requests every Tuesday morning in our staff meetings uh, at uh, 8 30 and then every Tuesday evening uh, every, twice a month at our elders meeting and there's an elders meeting coming up this next uh, week and we would just delight in praying with you and over you and hearing both your requests and your encouragements we truly want to intercede before you in the Lord, all right? Also, too, uh, before uh, I uh, have our prayer to get us into our teaching time, you all are invited at 2 o'clock this afternoon. Sarah Boltinghouse will be uh, ordained into the ministry of pastoral counseling and uh, ministry in our community. She's not joining the staff here at church, but she's recently graduated from Lincoln Christian University, and she's going to be having a ministry uh, to our community in the, in the realm of pastoral care and counseling, and uh, we want to invite you to this space at 2 p.m. for her ordination service, and I hope that everyone can come, and we're going to have light refreshments afterwards. Amen? Mm, amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Mm. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, so very grateful to gather here in this place. This place is holy because you are here. Thank you so much. You are why we're here, Jesus. We love you. And uh, now, God, as we open your word, we want you to feed us. We want you to change us. We want not only to be informed, but to be transformed. So as always, I ask and plead, God, help me get out of the way so that what you want said gets said. No more, no less. God, your word is supreme. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. and Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And the church said, 
Amen. 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 So last month in Fort Lauderdale, the largest multi-sport event in the nation took place. Uh, from softball to pickleball to archery to bowling to track and field, seniors all over the country gathered to show off their skills. I'm not talking about seniors in high school or college. I'm talking about seniors. The National Senior Games. Have you heard of the National Senior Games? I hadn't. Grandstands filled with spectators, normally grandparents and great-grandparents, this time The stands were filled with grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Runners in their 70s and 80s and 90s competed. Some hadn't taken up running until their 60s. Some needed help getting their shoes on before they got to the starting line. All of them competed and endeavored to complete their race. And the 90-somethings who competed, the 90-somethings, had plenty of advice for us youngsters. For instance, there's 93-year-old Lillian. Yeah, her advice, she, she, she participated in the 50-meter dash, the 100-meter dash, the 400, the 800, and the 1,500-meter run. I'm just tired reading that. She competed in the 90 to 95-year-old category, and her advice is, I just love it. I just love it. I just love to race. And then there's 99-year-old Roy. And you can see his advice. Keep moving. Just keep moving. He did the 400 meters, finishing the 400 meters in in three and a half minutes. But he got it. He got there. Isn't that wonderful? The, 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 The passion and the focus brings to my mind the passion and the focus that the Apostle Paul talked about when he spoke in a passage of Scripture about the Olympic Games, lasting glory, and the disciplined body. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, we're in a series of messages on the human body. We've been talking about human embodiment, various aspects of of the physical bodies that God has given us. And we've talked about the created body, and we've talked about the gendered body, and we've talked about your unique body, and then we've, uh, we've, we've talked about the suffering and the disabled body. And so today, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, we're going to learn about the disciplined body, the disciplined or the self-controlled body. And I'm going to read verses 24 through 27. I've tagged this message, the disciplined body, a crown of celery or imperishable glory. You may be confused by that, and that's okay, but hopefully in about 20 minutes you won't be, all right, all right. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? 
So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word. Now, as we consider these verses this morning, I, I really just want to answer two questions. I want to, first question is what, it's what and then it's why. That's where we're going. When Paul talks about discipline or self-control, what's he mean? Let's define the terms here. And then, and then why? Why does it matter? Why should we care? What makes it so important? Two very simple questions as we think through these verses this morning. And, and before we get to the what, let, let me just be up front um, to help us listen here a little bit. I have no idea what came to your mind uh, when you found out that I was going to be preaching on the disciplined body. And maybe you just found that out five minutes ago, maybe last Wednesday at our weekly word, last Tuesday's weekly word announcement that came to your mind. You were thinking, oh, man, you know. And, and let me just say, there is a way to preach on self-control and discipline that is, is demanding and bossy. There's a way to talk about it that kind of is demoralizing and shame-based, and there's a way to talk about it that has a do more, try harder uh, approach. And I'll just say this. I have never successfully shamed anyone into godliness. Right? What I want this morning is to step into God's reality of his revealed word. There's a, there's a reality that I want to invite you to step into. And it's beautiful, and it's splendid, and it's glorious, and it's filled with Jesus. And so uh, I want us to see these verses explode with meaning so that we can think about the disciplined body for what God wants it to be, a winsome, attractive display of Christ that that's my heart here today all right so let's get to the what what's Paul saying here what's what what's Paul doing in this paragraph this morning what when you read this phrase about the race and runners running and athletes exercises self what's Paul doing when He's teaching us here. He, you know what he's doing. He is comparing our life to Christ to elite athletes in the Olympic Games. That's what he's doing. He's opening our eyes to a very different dimension of reality with the familiar. He's taking something very familiar to the original readers, and he's revealing something beautiful and spiritual. 
in verse 24, Paul says, do you not know? When Paul says, do you not know? Well, the answer is, of course you know. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows that in a race, all the runners run, but only one wins the prize. Paul, Paul is saying, look, I don't want you to see the games the way the world sees the games. I want you to see them through the lens of gospel truth. I want you to hear God speak to you through these games, these pagan games. Every time you watch a sporting event, every Olympic game, every professional sport, every golf tournament, I want you to open your ears and open your eyes, and I want you to look for God. That's what Paul's doing here. You see, Paul wrote these words to the church in Corinth. And Corinth, every two years, hosted games. They were called the Isthmian Games. The Isthmian Games, that's what they were called. The Isthmian Games were second only to the Olympic Games held in Athens 50 miles away every four years. And the Olympic Games were held in Athens every four years for over a thousand years. So just the notion of the games just permeated culture. It was just as much a part of Paul's culture as American football and American baseball is in our culture. People just, Paul uses the language of the games. Everybody knows this. And around A.D. 50, Paul spent about a year and a half in Corinth. And it is reasonable to believe that he would have attended the games because everybody went to the games. Paul's into people. Paul's going to go where the people are. And thousands would have gathered. There would have been these exhibition booths outside the stadium and the games and the athletic facilities. And Paul would have set up his booth to sell his leather goods because the thousands of people have gathered. They're going to need some shelter. They're going to need leather goods. And, oh, let's go, let's go purchase from Paul. And the games would have included running and uh, discus throwing and gladiatorial combat and wrestling and boxing. And there would have been vendors with commercial goods. Have you heard the latest? There's this... Jew from Tarsus selling leather goods and he's urging people to believe in a new God. The guy's name is Paul. He's like a leather maker, a tent maker. And he's been in Corinth for a while and he's been talking about this guy named Jesus, a carpenter's son from Judea who was killed by the Roman authorities by crucifixion. And this Paul says that that Jesus came back to life after he'd been dead three days and, and then he doesn't stop at that. He says that people who believe this incredible otherworldly story will themselves rise from the grave and live with this resurrected Jesus whom they call the Messiah, the Christ. And, and this guy, Paul, has already converted a bunch of Jews in the area to his religious beliefs. Now he's turning many of the Greeks away from their ancient gods to join the followers of this resurrected Jewish criminal. Well, do you believe him? Well, yet there's just something about this Paul. 
something about his life. I've never met anybody like him. I mean, when Paul walks in the room, it's like this Jesus is with him. And here we are. And so a house church started in Corinth. And a few years later, the Apostle Paul writes 1 Corinthians. <laughs> and now we're reading that. Isn't that something? And later when Paul writes Corinthians, he says, Now you remember when I was with you? Remember when we went to the games and the games were in town? Remember the victor? Remember the victor? When you see the victor holding up the crown, this wreath, I want you to see God. God is speaking in that image. God is saying, I want you Christians, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to run like the winner of that race. That's what I want. I want you to take your faith in Christ as seriously as that Olympic contestant. That's what it means to fight the good fight. That's what it means to run the race with perseverance. I mean, think about it. Professional athletes of all kinds train methodically, thoughtfully, thoroughly, intentionally, fervently. And when they're not on the field, they're studying the sport. Planning, reviewing, evaluating. When a golfer plays at a major, on the first hole of the first day of the tournament, they don't ask their caddies, where's the pen? You know, how long is this hole? <laughs> they don't do that. They know exactly where the pin is. They know exactly where the traps are. They know how far. They know the dimensions. They have studied it. Paul's point is, do you take your Christianity that seriously? I mean, Paul was fervent in his conviction and display of Jesus. His physical body, Paul's physical body, was fully engaged with the gospel. Christ was his life. Being an apostle was not Paul's day job. It was a life vocation, vocation, vocare, calling, calling. And in verse 25, Paul describes this focused fervor with a word. You see the word there. Every athlete exercises self-control. There it is. Self-control. Enkratea. 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 Say that on three. One, two, three. Enkratea. There you go. You know Greek. Self-control. It literally means to take hold. To get a grip on. It means to arrest. To arrest what? Arrest your emotions your words, your desires, your decisions, your schedule, your time, your thoughts, your anger, your body, your choices. On everything, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. In all th so, so 
Self-control is the agony of arresting the body's appetites in all things. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Athlete, circle the word athlete. It's our word for agony. Agony, one who agonizes. Which leads to the question, what agony are you willing to endure self-control agony so there's a logic to self-control isn't there and the logic is that you know there's an internal conflict inside you know myself produces desires and those desires need to be controlled so self-control is not interested in the question what do you want out of life well i want to be happy and have a family and job well yeah okay but self-control asks a deeper question which is this what pain do you want in your life for whom or for what are you willing to struggle So self-control says that the quality of your life is not contingent on the quality of your positive experiences. Rather, it's contingent on the quality of your negative experiences. Because you can't compete in the Olympics without suffering, without facing specific, strategic, negative experiences. And self-control asks, what suffering will you choose for your body? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. So self-control closes the window when an explicit link pops up on your computer screen. Self-control sets up safeguards to keep away from those links altogether. To to choose a flip phone over a smartphone because of toxic links is no sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign of self-control. Self-control promptly ends the conversation when the topic turns to gossip. Self-control says, I'm not going to play outside until I finish my homework inside. Self-control is the outcome of training, not trying. It's a muscle to develop daily, not a fire extinguisher to use occasionally. Self-control says that grace opposes earning, but not effort. And self-control acknowledges that there are sins of unchecked desires, which are actually quite pleasurable at first. So self-control is not Samson, whose first spoken words in the Scripture were, I saw a woman. And his second spoken words in the Scripture were, go get her for me. That's not self-control. Self-control is not Solomon, who said in Ecclesiastes 3.10, I denied Myself, nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. That's not self-control. Self-control is Joseph in the book of Genesis when his boss's wife, Potiphar's wife, propositioned him saying, come to bed with me. Joseph fled. That's self-control. Self-control flees in the face of sexual temptation. 
Self-control is not self-sufficiency. Self-control is not self-dependence. Self-control is not self-effort. I can do it myself. No, no, no. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Titus 2, 11 and 12. Paul says that God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and embrace self-control. So, so when Christ's irresistible love controls me, self-control is the only sensible option. So, so, so the Christian way of self-control is not just say no. You don't just say no. You say no in a certain way. You say no by faith in the superior splendor of Christ. It's just as ruthless and just as agonizing and just as painful, but the difference between worldly self-control and godly self-control is crucial. Who's going to get the glory for the victory? That's the issue. Will we get the glory? Or will Christ get the glory? And that leads us to the second question. The why question. If, if self-control is the agony of arresting my body's appetites in all things, but why, why, why? Who is this for? Who is this for? Oh, this is where it gets rich. Well, look at verse 25. Paul says, they, who's they? That's, those are the athletes, they're the agonizers. They do it, do what? Do self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath a perishable wreath so so back then <laughs> they didn't hand out gold or silver or bronze medals those weren't awarded only the victor was awarded only the victor there was no second place there's the victor and then the losers and the victor was awarded the victor's wreath you now stay with me. You hear what God's saying? God's speaking now. People don't practice self-control because it's the virtuous thing to do. People practice self-control because they want the pleasure of the prize. That's why. They believe the pleasure of the wreath is worth the agony of the run. Pleasure of the wreath is worth the agony of the run. So the power for self-control comes from the wreath. It, it, from what we believe the wreath will give us. That we believe it will give us lasting pleasure. So, so listen, the root of self-control is not willpower, it's wreath power. Must be some wreath, huh? What kind of wreath? What kind of wreath did those runners back then pursue? Ah, let's talk to my friend here. Maybe you knew this already, but back then, do you know what the wreath was made of? Celery. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know that. 
I'd read that all my life and just found out this week, just this week, made a celery, made a, created a wreath out of this celery, crowned the victor. Now think, think, think. All that effort, all that practice, all that agony for salary? Are you kidding me? Who would do that? It happens every day, doesn't it? It happens every day. People expend enormous energy. They break down their bodies. They burn through their money. They sacrifice their relationships for this. For this. For the perishable wreath. And don't miss what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that after the athletes agonize for their victory, the wreath that sits on their head will later perish. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that by the time it sits on your head, it's already perished. Can you hear God? Are you the kind of person that would expend precious mental, physical, emotional, spiritual energy on something blatantly blatantly perishable who does that then Paul says we we agonize for the imperishable the gospel is imperishable go for the gospel Paul says and then in verse 25 uh, there are five rapid fire statements beginning with I you see that there, 26 and 27? That's why I do not run aimlessly. That's why I do not box as one beating the air. He says, I beat my body black and blue. He says, I make my body my slave. What's he talking about? Is Paul into self-harm? No, Paul is explaining his experience of agony for the imperishable wreath of the gospel. Paul says, here is what the gospel has done to my body. And I think he's referring back to what he says one page earlier in your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, when he says, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. These are the experiences of Paul's agony, lest after preaching to others, 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 I might be disqualified. I don't want to be disqualified because my preaching and my life are for others. Here we go. Self-control is the agony of arresting our body's appetites in all things to display Jesus to others. Mm -hmm. 
So, so big idea alert. Self-control is not about looking good in the mirror. It's about mirroring the good news of Christ to others. Amen? Amen? Amen. Do you believe that? I believe that self-control is not about looking good in the mirror. It's about mirroring the good news of Christ to others. It's not about the agony of calorie counting for self. It's about the agony of the crucified life for others. It's for Christ's glory, not self-glory. It's so that others may see and savor Christ. So Paul wrote these words right smack dab in the middle of a three-chapter conversation, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and 10. The conversation was about idol meat. And some Christians were highly sensitive about eating meat that had been offered to idols uh, because it triggered a past that they would rather not remember. Other Christians is like, it's me. It's me. So some had strong consciences in this area, and others not so strong consciences in this area. And Paul says, look, I, I can get along with and I can move in either space because I have arrested my desires out of love for others. My desires do not rule me so i you know, i can enjoy lobster and steak with the corinthians or i can forego it for peanut butter either meal is really okay and paul had the ability to move see when you have that perspective paul had the ability to move into various social circles and so he could he could show up in a jewish synagogue he could show up in a gentile athletic arena he could preach the gospel to commoners. He could preach to royalty. He could preach the gospel in New England. He could preach the gospel to Florida. He could preach the gospel to Seattle. He could preach the gospel to Texas. He could, he could move. Why? Because he didn't conduct his ministry in a homogenous echo chamber. His mobility came through constantly being look, on the lookout for ways which he could practice, act, and reenact the life of Christ because the life of Christ plays everywhere. And, and so why would the Corinthians, with no Bible, no history, no back, why would first century Corinthians be attracted to Christianity? Because they had met Jesus' ambassador. They had interacted with the diplomat of King Jesus. And after listening and conversing and relating and witnessing the quality of his leather work, and after experiencing Paul's person, they left their experience with him with the clear impression that this man was possessed by a ruler of another realm. For you see, Christ was his life not his day job. That's why he would say in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, listen, your body is fearfully and wonderfully made. What agony is worthy of your body? 
Paul says, run to obtain the prize. Take your faith seriously enough to persevere because when you exercise the spirit-given fruit of self-control, that opens you up to the endless possibilities of places and spaces to represent Jesus. The agony for Christ's message leads to the expansion of Christ's mission. And if what I've said so far isn't clear enough, let me make it very clear. Your life is worth more than celery. And you're going to find that the prize is not just Jesus and me. It's bigger than that because it has to do with others. You see, when Paul was in Corinth, while he was in Corinth, before he even wrote these verses, he was thinking about another church that he had planted, Thessalonica. And this is what he said. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. So that the disciplined body is never so that you can earn heaven. It's so that others may see the life of Christ in you and want that. And that is him and he is imperishable. Oh, church, it's not about looking good in the mirror. It's about mirroring the good news of Christ to others. And you know why we're here today. We're here because of the most self-controlled person in the history of the world. For all his life, Jesus was without sin. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Luke says he stayed the course even when he sweat drops of blood. Matthew says he could have called legions of angels. But he had the self-control not to debate the false charges. Peter says when reviled, he did not revile in return. Luke says as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Even when they spit in his face, even when they struck him, even when they slapped him, even when they mocked him, and even when they scourged him. In every agony, the scripture says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And at the pinnacle of his self-control, he was obedient on the cross to the point of death. And God has granted us the privilege of bearing Christ's image in our bodies for others. He is our wreath. He is our imperishable wreath. Amen.